and welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. I'm Chad. And I'm Eli. And it is time for the listener... <laughs> Thank you to everybody who submitted stories. We've got some really good ones. Oh, yes. Um, we're going to start with one that was sent to us via our favorite Australian. Steve Irwin? No. He's second favorite. Followed by the Hamesworth brothers. And <laughs> 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 oh, wait. This, that's just my list. All right. So, what about Crocodile Dundee? Oh, yeah. He's got to get up there, too. Uh, that's not a knife. This is a knife. Why don't you pull out a buddy knife? Because it's a knife. All right. Now, she didn't write this story. This is one that she found on Reddit from Juggernaut J. Juggernaut J. My creepy hike in Australia. Hey, guys. I've been a lurker on Let's Not Meet for quite a while now. And I've been constantly debating whether or not I should relate my own experiences. So I think I will. I've had three different creepy encounters. I'll just post one today and post the other two a little bit later in the week. This is my first ever post on Reddit, so I'm sorry if I break any taboos. This story was a very long time ago, and a lot of it I struggle to remember. So I had to get a lot of the details from my mom beforehand. Okay, so I'm a guy. And about 11 years ago, when I was 8 years old, me and my family, mom, dad, and brother as well as my brother's girlfriend, who was living with us at the time, went on holiday to Australia to visit some relatives on my mom's side of the family. They lived in a rural part of Victoria, and to give a basic summary of the area, they lived on a farm. The house was surrounded by various fields. When facing the house, on the left side there were two fields, and on the far end of the fields were a highly wooded area and a dirt track, a dirt track running through it. My grandparents, the relatives that lived there, would often go on nature rambles through the forest to spot wildlife that lived within there. My mother, being a dedicated bird spotter, decided to head off with me and Lisa, my brother's girlfriend, into the forest, as we both had fascinations with wildlife. We must have been walking along the dirt track for about 10 minutes, taking pictures of various animals we'd seen. We passed by a line of motorbikes and about seven bikers having a barbecue. One of the bikers politely smiled at my mother, and she responded with a simple good evening. As we walked past them, one of the bikers approached us and asked us where we were going. We told them, and they informed us that they had been camping in the area for about two nights. They told us to be careful, as people had been shooting game in the forest. These people apparently had aggressive dogs, so we were told to be careful. About 15 minutes later, I spotted an old barn, which I dashed off to explore, being the adventurous child that I was, while my mother and Lisa observed a bird of some kind. I didn't tell them where I was going. As I approached the barn, I saw three large dogs tied up outside. They were Rottweilers, and they seemed incredibly aggressive. They were on chains and barking and snarling a lot. I didn't think a lot about it. I assumed they were for hunting, but looking back, Rottweilers aren't hunting dogs. There was an old mattress on the floor outside, which appeared to be covered in brown stains and emitted a foul aroma. It was around three feet away from the mattress, but the smell was unbelievably powerful. 
As I was going to turn around to return to the others, I saw a man emerging from the barn. The image of the man is one of only the few things I remember clearly from that day. He was very tall, about 6'4", and was wearing a blue pinstripe suit. The strangest part about him was that he wore a large top hat. His clothing seemed very worn, and his face, the parts that weren't covered by the large brown beard, were red as if he'd been out working on a hot day. I remember the man smiled and approached me. I asked him if he were a magician, to which he said, No, I look after doggies. Do you like doggies? I told him I did. This is when things started to get weird. He began to approach me and ask if I wanted to come inside and have my picture taken with the dogs. I politely refused and said my mom would be looking for me. He grabbed my arm lightly and said, It would only take a second. At that point, I heard my mom shouting to the man, demanding to know who he was and what he was doing. She had come looking for me. The man simply let go and just stared at her. She asked him again, in which he continued to blankly stare. He didn't say a word. My mom immediately grabbed my arm, and me, her, and Lisa walked as quickly as possible back to the entrance. We got about halfway there when I turned around and told my mother that the magician was following us. She turned around. Sure enough, he was power walking behind us. My mom screamed at him and asked what he wanted. He didn't reply. Again, simply continued power walking towards us. At this point, my mom began walking even faster to to the point that she was dragging me along. The next part of the story is mostly a blur to me. I remember my mom grasping and picking me up and sprinted full pelt with me while screaming for help. My mom tells me that the man had begun running towards us and had managed to grab my leg. She said that Lisa jumped on the man's back and scratched all over his face before he threw her to the floor. My mom apparently kicked the man in the testicles, grabbed Lisa off the ground, and ran with me over her shoulder. I remember we slowed down shortly afterwards and stopped to catch our breath. We continued walking, looking over our shoulder for the magician to show up again from the bush area. My mom began to panic and started running with me again. The man was sprinting after us. We were nearing the area where the bikers were camping, and my mom screamed for help. Two bikers emerged from the tree, and my mom screamed, That man's trying to kidnap my son. The magician turned around and immediately bolted in the other direction. One of the bikers pursued him, but unfortunately the magician had a head start. I remember the bikers were incredibly nice. I soon forgot all about the strange man after one of the bikers let me sit up front on his motorbike. While my mom and Lisa were in the sidecar, the guy took us to the nearest town and dropped us off at the police station where my mom filed a report. After that, he gave us all a lift back home which was really nice. I never got to thank him at the time, and I didn't really understand the situation. But on an off chance that you're a reader of Let's Not Meet, I want to say thank you. As for you, the magician, whose intentions I'm unsure of, let's not meet again, ever. She kicked them down under. Yes. <laughs> right in the McNuggets. <laughs> I thought it was a creepy story. Yeah, that's pretty good. Got yeah. So that was a good story, actually. I like that one. The next one. Damn, I already picked up my Halloween costume. Could have got a blue pinstripe suit and a tall hat. Our next one is from. It's from Luxa Strata. 
You may remember Lex Estrada from our episode about Dion Fortune and the Magical Battle of Britain. Let's listen, shall we? They're good people. Hey, what's up? This is Luxa from the Luxa Cult Podcast. And this is a story that my husband told me about something that happened before we met. He had just gotten done serving in the Marines and was living with a buddy in a two-story house in the foothills of the mountains. Uh, one evening, he came home from working a closing shift and noticed that the door was unlocked. He didn't think anything of it. This was a pretty long time ago in a very safe neighborhood, and you have these, like, Marines living in a house together, and they had just both come back from war, so he just wasn't super worried at the time about the door, from what he said. He went to the kitchen and grabbed a beer and started making himself a snack. He, like, had his head in the refrigerator when he got that feeling, like you're being stared at or watched. He and his roommate used to like to play a lot of pranks on each other, so he thought that this might be just like his spidey sense telling him that something like that was about to happen. Like, I guess they had a bunch of like Nerf guns and shit, I don't know. But he turned around expecting to see his roommate, but the kitchen was empty. He knew his roommate was at home though, since the upstairs hall light was on and my husband could hear like voices in the TV set coming from his roommate's bedroom. So after eating, he decided to go take a shower. Uh, so he went upstairs, and it was at this point that he noticed that the light in his roommate's bedroom was off, and the door was wide open, which was weird, since the guy, like, always kept it closed to the point where he was sort of, like, obsessive about it, I guess. The TV was not on in the room. It was completely dark except for the red glow of a digital clock. The room was obviously empty. Nobody seemed to be home. So at this point, my husband sort of backed away in the direction he had come, feeling like a little weirded out and he reached in his pocket to grab his phone to call his roommate to see where he was but it wasn't there and so standing at the top of the stairs he had that thing happen where you know all of a sudden the hair stand up on the back of your neck and your heart starts to beat and you know it's the survival instincts lighting up so he bounded down the stairs and out the door and like in this like, cold sweat and he said by the time he got outside he was like freezing cold and he got to his truck and he found his phone was like there on the driver's seat. And there was a text message from his roommate saying that he and his girlfriend were going to her parents' house for the night. So that was weird because like she practically like lived there and like my husband's roommate and her were like always in the house together. But that night they had obviously left in a hurry. They didn't lock the door. And according to the text message, there had been something quote unquote wrong about the house that night. According to the girlfriend, a presence, a predatory presence, I guess. Uh, the type of thing you just can't let yourself fall asleep around. He spent the rest of the night in his truck. Ooh. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like the sound like she was like, I can't fire. Yeah. To the background. Mm -hmm. Found spooky stories around the fire. Honestly, um, we could totally use that name. Mm -hmm. Not for any kind of you know sixties resemblance, but I got chills are multiplying. <laughs> <laughs> and he's losing control because the power he's supplying. No, it's, it's electrifying. It's supplying. <laughs> Hey, it's 2020. We can't judge. Yeah, he's right. We can't judge the spirit's uh, gender. Thank you, Luxa, for that story. You guys can check out Luxa's podcast, Luxa Cult, 
ad hoc history, and smuts up. She is also working with several people with the intention of helping with how this year has been on everyone. If you are among the initiated, DM me or her at Lux Estrada on Facebook or Instagram if you want to be involved. Giggity. I mean, um... <laughs> Sorry, I got confused. <laughs> All right. Our next story comes from Hector, who, if you again remember the Dion Fortune episode... He was with Luxa. So here is the story that he sent us. This is Cemetery Stories and Other Weirdness by Hector DeFool. This story is some general spookiness. My first year in college in central western New York, in the Great Lakes region, I dated this gal who was all into occult stuff like me. The first time I ever did acid or mushrooms was with her, and we had a great time. Most of the time. But the first super spooky event that happened in the course of our relationship was a trip we took with a couple of other people to this cemetery. It was one of the largest in the Rochester, New York area. I'm not going to say the name of it, because it was at nighttime, and we were technically not supposed to be there. But I will say the cemetery is massive. Biggest one I've ever been in in my life. And I've been in a lot of cemeteries, being a bit of a death-obsessed goth kid at heart. So we're wandering around this cemetery, right? And it's made dark except for a little bit of light pollution in the sky from the city. There were no stars out, no moon. It was early winter, so the sky was all gray and cloudy and the ground was covered in at least an inch of snow. Not dense packed snow, the light fluffy kind that is mostly useless, for anything fun anyway. But that's an important point in this little tale, because supposedly there was a night watchman we were supposed to look out for who walked around with his dog. I guess the cemetery was supposedly used for satanic rituals back in the 80s, Probably some satanic panic bullshit. But they hired a night watchman to make sure people weren't having too much unchristian fun with the dead. Now back to my point about the snow. When we were walking around, our steps would go clean through the snow and into the ground below. You could see solid prints. Not only that, you could see prints of people who were there earlier in the day and brought their dogs with them. There were prints all over. The spooky thing was that there were these huge prints that looked like a real big dog made them. I grew up with Rottweilers and German Shepherds, and they looked a lot like that size of print. Those dogs were heavy, no less than 100 pounds. They would easily sink in this kind of snow. But the prints looked like the animals just treading along the surface of the snow. They didn't sink in at all. It's not normal physics. My friends were not in the least interested. They passed it off as prints that had just filled with recent snowfall. But why was that not the case with all the other prints then? That wasn't the least weird thing that happened in this place. The next one you could pass off as a trick of the light, and maybe it was. But I can still see it clearly in my mind today. We found this corner of the cemetery tucked off to the side somewhere. Before you go up a big hill in the middle, 
There was a few headstones and several large shrouded stone statues. The statues were heavily eroded by the weather over the years, to the point where you couldn't see the details of the faces. It was really strange, and I spent a good deal of time looking at them. Maybe a bit too long. Because the face, or lack thereof, that I was looking at, started to move around in itself. Kind of like the way a pattern moves around and flows through itself when you are tripping. If you all are familiar with that experience. And before you ask, no, we were all bone sober. And no, flashbacks aren't a real thing. That is propaganda. And no, I have no history of mental illness. Nothing like that has ever happened to me again. But after a good five minutes of that weirdness, I was like, nope, and walked away from the group. And so I walked up the path that led up the hill by myself. Yeah, I know I was 18 and breaking horror movie rules. Typical. Everyone else was checking out these cool mausoleums down below. But I wanted a few moments to myself. So I walked up this path that was wooded on either side. It was a pretty steep hill to the top. They didn't put any graves along the way. Just a trail through the woods. So instead of looking around me, I was looking up most of the way. I could see a thin patch of misty gray sky bordered on either side by dark, leafless trees. This thing will never leave my mind. I'm walking along in a huge shape, just above the tree line, so it must have been enormous, that looked like a tattered bedsheet, dark and black, passed over the trail way up high. Needless to say, I turned back and jogged to my group. Naturally, they were like, I'm sure it was just a big owl or a plane or something. Hell no. It was not as tiny as an owl, and planes make noise. This thing looked like a damn banshee, but silent as the grave. Never been back to that damn cemetery, and I've never seen anything like that ever again. These weren't the only creepy experiences while hanging out with this gal pal of mine, though. A couple nights we stayed over at a witchy couple's house. Folks she lived with on and off again. One night I was having a hard time getting to sleep, and I heard the faint sound of a baby crying in the house. The couple did have kids, but when I mentioned it in the morning, they said the kids were at their grandparents' house that night. They were both between three and five at this point, too. That same night, I had this vision. Like, full-on, in the room, eyes-open vision of a purple mountain. It faded into view, and then out of view again. I researched Purple Mountain for a couple days, and all I could find is a mountain in China that is known as the Purple Mountain. So maybe I'll take a pilgrimage someday. There was also one night we stayed there on the second floor in a bed in the guest room. And in the middle of the night, the bed rocked back and forth. Okay, there were a few nights where the bed rocked back and forth. <laughs> I was waiting for but that that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> it wasn't side to side. It was kitty corner, diagonal, on the bed legs, like some stuff straight out of the exorcist. It didn't last long. Maybe a second, that's it. Never stayed in that house again after that. 
Real nice people, but that was a bit much for me. She must have been super disappointed. <laughs> just a couple seconds. seconds. <laughs> yeah. That's where you just look at her and be like, we start at the same time. Where were you at? Those are really cool. Yeah. I've had the straight-eyed, open-eyed vision before, mm-hmm. and it it takes you by surprise. <laughs> Especially if you're not trying to have a vision, and it just happens, and you're like, okay. <laughs> be sure to go check out Hector's podcast, Fool's Guide to the Occult. He also makes very elaborate ritual items that can be found on his Etsy store, Magic in Metal. That's M-A-G-I-C-K-N-M-E-T-A-L. That's capital N, not a lowercase N. Be real, people. Thanks again, Hector. That was an awesome story. I've never been in a cemetery at night. I really should just do like some cemetery night walking. So the funnest part about this is that I have done one, and it was here in Norman. Stupid. Um, And it was literally just me and a couple of my friends, and I guess a a guy that one of my friends had an interest with. And they're like, let's go use this app for for ghost hunting in in the cemetery. It's the one right off of uh, Porter. Yeah. IWF. Yeah. And we we just drove up there, and we were like, okay, let's just walk around. So we all walked around, and... You know, it's weird whenever I look back on it now, I'd never do that again. You weren't the kids that vandalized the mausoleums, were no, you? No, we didn't. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. no. See, I wasn't a kid back then. I was around 20 to 23 years That's old. That's a kid. And I'm not stupid enough to do something like mm. that. No. Um, kids broke into one of the mausoleums, broke in the door, and then we're sitting in there getting high and... Left beer bottles and all kinds of stuff in the... Yeah, no. Sounds like an Eli thing. Wow, okay. But anyways, (laughs) um, if you're going to go, you know, grave sitting or grave exploring, if you will, don't do that. Because there's a thing called karma. There's also things that can stick to you as well that you cannot get rid of. So... Yeah, like STDs. We have to figure up a terminology that is technically possession, but STDs. Talk about STDs. Oh, yeah, it's called a possession. (laughs) Ghostly STDs. (coughs) Now, our favorite Australian didn't fail us. We've got another one. Another one? This is also from... How do you say to an Australian? To. Oh. (laughs) Toi. Oh. That's French. Uh, Dos would be Spanish. (laughs) All right. So. Uh, Also, also, it's three in uh, Cajun. (laughs) A few is three in Oklahoma. Oh, yeah? No. A few is whatever number you want it to be. I deal with that every day at work. (laughs) No, there's. there's Can I have a couple? A couple. Couple is two. A few. A few is three. Well, that's what it's supposed to be. No. Also, Most people just go, can I get a couple? You bring them two, and they go, oh, no, I need five. I thought three was a thruple. Well, there's a thruple, too, but uh, that's a three-part couple. Also, uh, the other day means two years ago. Yeah. Oh, for me, the other day could be anywhere from... Ten minutes ago. Ten minutes ago to five, six, ten years ago. My favorite is <laughs> over yonder, which can be from one foot away all the way to the horizon. Oh, yes. <laughs> that was rather deep, Dave. I really love that. I... I our daddy used yonder all the time. Mm-hmm. It's over yonder. Can you give me a direction Can that you yonder narrow is? it down? Just <laughs> <a little>? South. 
<coughs> it's down yonder at the Chattahoochee. Man, I'll it t- gets hotter than a hoochie coochie. I'll tell you this though, when I, you know, and this is kind of related to this, but um, I'm a it's nerd and I play be. video games and shooters and stuff like that online. And there's an occasional situation where you'll get, actually get paired with somebody who is either military or had military background at some point, and they'll start yelling out, you know, 300 meters away, 200 meters away, and you're like, where the fuck is? That? <laughs> But this is the same situation. Dave's like, yeah, it's about five clicks that way. Yeah. They yell clicks. I'm like, and then you'll hit, li- listen for the echo. You're like, where the hell is it at? Click means kilometer. <laughs> I don't know that. That foreign oh, it's, measuring it's system. Easy. It's it's a thousand meters. <laughs> um. So back to Amy's story. I grew up in Americas, and we Americans... We use the inches. <laughs> we use Fine. the stupid format. It's like 63,000 like inches. I like how we also call it standard, but we're the only, only place that uses, uses it. it. <laughs> it's like, it's the American standard, they, honey. They used a measuring system that was like, nah, we'll give it to the Americans. It's like, nah. Huh, what, what, what do you mean? What, what? And everyone's just like, no, he's 37 meters wide right there. 37 meters. Which the interesting thing is standard actually comes from England. Yeah. And then it got brought over here. And then after the revolution, they switched to imperial. And we stayed standard. Yeah. I did find it interesting, though, when going back to the last the series that we just did on Infield, Guy Playfair used feet and inches hmm? in his book. Oh, they so. d- they know them. They're yeah. willing to learn them. We're not really li- no. willing to learn yeah, the magic. <laughs> I ain't learning that freaky deaky shit. I, I it's actually supposed it to be a whole lot easier than oh, it what is. we do. But it's a, all in multiples of ten. So <laughs> you know, we of twelve and sixty and <laughs> it's like how many feet are in a mile? All right, back to Amy's story. Now oh, this yeah, one comes. Oh, yeah. This one comes from Reddit. And it is by M Diddley. And it's called What do you think the M stands for? M. Night Shyamalan diddle on. <laughs> <laughs> and this story is called Creepy Happening in the Australian Outback. I could never quit you. Does it oh, involve, oh, that's the other weird shit that happens. Does in the it involve Outback. Australian kisses? No. Okay. okay. I was told to post... I was told to post this here from r slash darkwoods. 100% true. Still scared to go out there. I went out pigging with my best mates all the time. But this one time, the dogs lose their shit and go jump off the back. So we stop and let them loose. And they shoot off like they're on the trail of something. Something beside a really tall damn bank. So we think we're on to some pigs. We were standing there and we could hear their bells off in the distance getting farther away. Then nothing. The brush, the bush was silent and we started to get a bit unnerved. We felt okay because we were both holding loaded guns, but it was still an uneasy feeling. We stood listening for about 10 to 15 minutes and could hear not a thing. It was almost suffocating. So my mate started calling his dogs in. He was calling for a good 15 minutes, and we still hear nothing. So he said, fuck, we're going looking for him. And he turned 
he turned to the car and we heard the bells come from behind us in the tree line, which we thought was weird because it was the opposite direction in which the dogs had left. So we turned around and listened and my mate started calling out to them to come and from behind us come the dogs without their bells. Needless to say, we both shipped bricks, threw them in the car and bail on and bail to the other side of this place. The whole time the bells were jingling like something had them. Weird thing was we were a good 400 kilometers from the closest civilization. So we shit absolute bricks and were uneasy the rest of the night. Any Welton else experience anything like this? Never. Well, they speak like our family. Yeah. Uh, um, that would be pretty terrifying, though. What is the Yowie? That's what they have in Australia. Yowie. Yeah, the Yowie. The Australian Bigfoot. We should do an episode about that. We should. Yowie. That's like Yahoo, but it's the <laughs> Australian <laughs> Yowie. If you're going to do it, you got to be like Yowie. Our next story comes from an anonymous listener. Eli, you going to take this one? Yes. Sir. I worked a graveyard shift at a nursing home roughly 15 years ago. I had two supernatural experiences not long after starting. In fact, they tried to haze me about ghosts after both of them. Y'all were too late. LOL. First one, I was doing my first rounds of the night, and I'd usually start at the far end of the hall, where it was the dead end, no pun intended, and work my way back towards the nursing station. And a in a double room, checking the two residents and emptying trash cans. While I'm standing by the door, taking care of the small trash bag, I hear a voice across the hall. I look up, and I don't see anyone immediately, but decide to wait to see if I hear it again. Maybe I imagined it. I hear the resident across the hall speak, a woman, in quotations. And a moment later, I heard a man's voice respond. I'm immediately concerned because she's in a room by herself. There shouldn't be anyone in, in there. So I, got over, so I got over quietly, and before announcing myself, I looked behind the door in the bathroom. I checked the window. Nothing is amiss. She's lying there awake. And so I asked her how, is she, how she is. And was she talking with somebody? Yes, she says. I asked if she knew who he was. No, she says. But he comes by often and they talk. Okay. So I'm concerned. I finish my round, rounds and don't hear him again. I tell the nurse what happened. And she's very nonchalantly says. Yeah, a lot of the residents have asked to be moved from that room for similar issues. Um, well, okay then. Second one, I mean, <laughs> so so we got a disembodied voice that these um, residents of this nursing home just talk openly with. Yeah, that's almost like how kind of like children can see and talk with like unseen forces. Yeah, that's very interesting. They're closer to the veil. Oh, yeah, it's because time moves in a circle, my friend. That's so deep, dude. <laughs> 
<clears throat> All right. I'm in the other wing of the building where the residents are more mobile and really just need someone to come by just in case. A gentleman needed to use the restroom, so I came to help him out of bed and just wait in the room while he did so. While I'm standing there, the door to his room is still open by about six inches, and I'm looking out, giving him his privacy. I see a woman in a wheelchair start to go by the door, and I watch to see who is pushing her, but she goes by the door, and there's no one pushing her. So I dash to the door and look out in the direction she was going and look onto an empty hallway. It was at one of the dead ends. There was nowhere for her to have gone. I get the gentleman settled again and then go to the nurse. I explain, and she says, Oh, yeah, that's Mildred. She comes by every once in a while. Uh, okay. So this is just a thing. Roger that. So, yeah. Nursing home ghosts. Interestingly... I never had anything happen in the third floor and the last wing of the building, the Alzheimer ward. Always very quiet there. I like how these nurses are just like, oh, yeah, that's normal. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you're rotted enough. You just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's just how it is. It's kind of like the Hodgson's. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. That's just a Lego. That's just a Lego. Um, there's a marble. Well, I think the, the funny, war has started. Uh, <laughs> I think the funniest part is, is that the the longer you stay in a situation, the easier it be, and as long as it's not um as long as it's not like malfinous or dangerous to be in a room with something like that, or the spirit's not at all angered, you kinda just live with it. Oh yeah. yeah. I've lived in a haunted house before. I mean me and Amy both have. Yeah. I've had things happen. No, I haven't really had things a lot of things happen in the new house, but <clears throat> old house and stuff like that. Okay. It just is what it is. I mean, you can't you can't see it. So you're still not 100% sure it's real, but well, you're sure enough that there's something happening. All I know is I was able to, at the rent house, multiple times I'd see the closet or my bedroom door like, swing open or close a little bit. And if it was closing, I'd shut the door and I'd watch the door close. I'm like, thank you. Tardy, you open and closing it. Just leave it shut. <laughs> well, I mean, there's another situation like when we went to, uh, when we actually saw uh, the nun, and I told you that like I was scared as shit the next morning. The situation was is there's a dark corner in that room that I slept in, where I swear to God I saw white in a dark area. Like, oh yeah, there was something in that house. I just so used to it. I like I said, I. I'd have it. I'd see the door like swing, like closet door swing in the middle of the night. I'd be like, "Will you please shut the door?" And the door would close. And I'd be like, "Thank you." <laughs> You've heard of clap on? Have you heard of ghost on? No. Okay. And the next one from again our favorite Australian, Amy, 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 Amy. This is again another one from Reddit. Uh, this is by Enigma, and it is. While camping in Australia. Are we talking about Enigma as in um, the uh, Riddler? That's Ed Enigma. Oh, shit. Hey. Camping always has the potential to be kind of creepy. 
I love it, being alone in the middle of nowhere with nothing but a tent between me and the elements. I find it incredibly refreshing to get away from the rest of humanity like that. Yet I would be the first to admit that being so isolated, it's easy to go from calm and relaxed to panicked and expecting death with nothing more than a sound of a twig snapping unexpectedly. But it's worth it, and I take all the safety precautions I can. My family knows my travel plans, up-to-date maps. I check in via satellite phone regularly. There's an idea there. Hire a recently serviced vehicle, spare wheels, spare fuel, spare water, and all the rest, plus enough medical supplies to start a small hospital. I also do a lot of research so that I know the area. Mostly the weather, the politics, the local flora and fauna. I was traveling to snake and spider infested Australia, so the last one was a bit of a particularly high priority for the trip. I make a bit of money as a freelance natural nature photographer, so I was hoping that the spring season would get me some good shots of wildlife. But despite, but despite feeling pretty organized, despite never having any major problems while camping in the past, there is one more thing I will never neglect looking at again. Local folklore. Yeah, right. Laugh if you want. But let me tell you about my time camping in the Australian Outback. It had been a rough day of driving. I felt every joint, I felt every one of my joints was compressed from the Land Rover bouncing over the rough corrugated tracks and the weather had been particularly hot and dry even more than usual four days into my two-week trek across the desert i was sunburnt blistered and covered in little bites from gnats and mosquitoes and which no amount of sunscreen or instant insect repellent seems to protect against respectively i considered it all worth it though the landscape was spectacular like nothing i'd ever seen before when i stopped for lunch there was a panoramic view of red earth land so flat that you could see for miles uninterrupted. But for the low growing grasses and the occasional silvery paper bark tree, I could make out one distant peak. It definitely wasn't a mountain. I would hesitate to even say a hill. It must have been less than 500 feet high. It stood out in the otherwise flat landscape. I, set, I decided to drive towards it, camp nearby, as I could try to get a normal phone reception from the top and take some photos of the desert in the sunset. I arrived at its base, and it was late in the afternoon, so I set up my tent on the, f- on the flat, hard soil before gathering my gear to climb the hill. It was relatively easy to scramble up. I had changed into trousers before leaving, despite the heat, because the temperature always drops so suddenly in the desert. I was grateful grateful for this later as my knees were somewhat protected as I hauled myself over the rocks and through the thorny bushes. My hands were stained bright red from the, of the bright red of the soil by the time I neared the top, and I suspected that the rest of me was too. I could feel ev- I could even feel grit permeating my mouth. There was no regular reception, but I wasn't worried. I still had the satellite phone if I needed it. The top made for a great granite made for a great vantage point for pictures. But the sun was still a little while off the, the beauty beautiful dusky light, so I had to look around. The hill was mostly barren rock, but small 
determined shrubs found room to grow. All but weathered and stunted in the slightest of cracks. On the far side, I discovered a small hollow of a cave. It was narrow at the mouth and rapidly, but rapidly got more wide further in. I yelled and stomped in an attempt to ascern if there was any wildlife lurking, but there was no sound in response. Crouching down, I shuffled in. It smelled sour and like rotting meat. My boots kicked against something solid, which clattered away like dropped cutlery. Clicking on my torch, I saw it was a pile of bones, ranging vastly in size. They looked recent and were not entirely devoured of flesh. Disgusted, I covered my mouth and nose with my hand and quickly swung the light around to assure myself I was alone. Native wild dogs, I suspected, dingoes, nocturnal, and already out hunting for the night. There were bones scattered throughout the cave, sometimes at random, sometimes in little piles, as well as partially eaten animal carcasses, small mammals mostly, and the better part of a big roo. Slight depressions in the hollows in the dust indicated where the animals must lay. I didn't linger. Knowing the scent would already cause the dingoes some consideration when they returned. Although, like any wild dogs, I knew dingoes could be vicious. I wasn't worried camping so close. They looked very well fed, and they weren't the type of animal to pick fights with humans unprompted. Outside, I got a couple of shots of a wedge-tailed eagle, or before it flew quickly east and eventually shot off shots of the sun setting over the desert plains. I had expected to see more wildlife. This was the least populated part of the desert so far. Apart from the carcasses in the cave, I hadn't seen any mobs of kangaroos nor the common bustard bird at all. Not good for photography. It seems that here, even the flies and ants weren't pestering me. It was peaceful. Lying back on a rock, I watched the stars emerge one by one, knowing I was the only human for hundreds of miles. Desolate, nearly uninhabited expansions of wilderness in every direction makes you feel like you're on another planet. It can make me uneasy at times, but mostly er, it feels liberating to be so isolated, and I was happy. Eventually I had to climb down before I lost all visibility. Night had fallen like a blanket, painting the luminous landscape in shades of gray and navy. I had left an electric lantern on my table at the camp, so with no obstruction on the plane, it was easy to get back to the car in the dark. But as I walked, occasionally losing my footing on loose stones or burrows of animals, I saw the lantern fall from the table in the distance. No, it didn't fall. It arced upwards before falling to the ground. The light going dim those things are heavy and hardy it would be difficult for the wind to knock it over let alone and pick it up and drop it and force it to break i stood poised in the dark it wasn't pitch black the light from the stars and the silver of the moon illuminated the outline of the cars glint glinted off the metal fastenings of the tent behind me the hill was a dark mass of looming impenetrable shadows I picked up the pace, jogging as carefully as I could. I considered waving my arms, yelling and shining my torch. Anything to try to frighten away any dingoes that might be lingering. But I also didn't want to aggravate them. 
Besides, I couldn't see any sign of movement at the campsite. This was confirmed when I arrived. Apart from the lantern, nothing was disturbed. But the lantern, it looked like it had been crushed underfoot. But it would have taken a massive amount of weight to achieve that. A second later, I nearly jumped from my skin when in the distance, the most bone-chilling sound I'd ever heard reverberated through the night. Yeah. High-pitched, undulating cries, rise, rising and falling in mass chorus. I was already jittery, so it took me a second to realize that it must be Dingo's howling. But they sounded so, dis so distant when surely they had been at my campsite only moments before. Nothing could move that fast. The cold, still night air carried the calls from what sounded like miles away. Hair stood up on the back of my neck, and the long howls only added to my growing anxiety. I did several things then. I made sure that my car keys were in my pocket. I dragged my sleeping bag out of the tent and made room for it in the back seat, of the, in, in the back seat to sleep there. At least the car would block out the sounds of the dogs better than the tent. I climbed onto the roof of the car and adjusted the spotlight I had attached. It was good for providing emergency light, and I often use it to look looking for animal eyes in the night near my camp. Usually, I enjoy this interaction with nature. This night, I was already nervous. With some trepidation, I moved the beam of light around the, cl around the clearing, straining my eyes for any glint of reflection that would in indicate the presence of another creature. I thought there was nothing, but the very top of the light caught something. So briefly, I wondered that I, if I had actually imagined it. I swung the beam higher and higher, beyond the height of a dingo, far beyond even the height of a human, and I saw it again. Two milky white, perfectly round dots in the dark. I was frozen stiff, with shock until the, this, they tilted suddenly. I jumped, the spotlight jerking to one side with me, where I saw more of the eyes. These ones were close enough I could make, make out shadowed, impossibly lurking humanoid frames with elongated limbs and with the light on them. They too jerked their heads as though to look at me, eyes glinting white and luminescent like pearls. I turned the light off instantly. It was stupid, but all I could think was that I didn't want them to see any more. The darkness embraced me even more thoroughly now that my eyes had grown accustomed to such bright light. I blinked, desperately trying to discern any movement nearby, while simultaneously dreading seeing anything at all. In the distance, the house cut off abruptly. My own ragged breathing was the only sound. Strange, when usually the nights were hosted choruses of insects and chirping. When suddenly a rush of adrenaline and instinct warned me to move, I pitched myself off the roof of the car. I didn't climb. I threw myself off, hit the ground hard on one shoulder, staggered upright, and started fumbling for my keys. I heard a rumbling sound, deep and building like an avalanche, and realized that the ground was shaking. Wrenching, wrenching open the door, I heard a ripping nearby. I didn't have to turn around to know that my tent was being shredded. My lungs straining, my heart pounding, and the content of my stomach doing a rolling impersonation of the Spanish Armada. I jammed the keys into the ignition. The engine stuttered to life. The headlights blinked on. There was nothing in front of my car. My relief didn't last. An immense scraping sound came from the back of the Land Rover. 
Then a twisting shriek of metal being mutilated. I yanked the gearbox, fumbling to get the car into drive while simultaneously looking in the rearview mirror. I couldn't see anything past the luggage I'd piled onto the roof in the boot, but scraping the back of the vehicle, the scraping on the back of the vehicle continued like something was trying to claw its way inside. When I heard the sound of glass smashing, I finally slammed my foot onto the accelerator and began to hurl back in the direction I'd come that day. It wasn't long before I nearly rolled the car. The right-hand side dipped into a dry creek bed at high speed. I swerved and by some luck managed to regain control and slowed my pace considerably. Never had I had to exert more self-control. Every instinct was telling me to keep moving as fast as possible, but my more rational side knew that getting out in one piece was more important. Every time I glanced in the side mirrors, I expected to see something in pursuit. I drove through the night, hands gripping the wheel like vices, jumping at the silhouette of every tree. As the light of dawn broke and my breath puffed up in clouds in the morning chill, I saw what I had been looking for, a fence indicating a nearby cattle station. I had stopped to refill my water the previous morning. I drove up to the property. The owner was bundled up in a woolen jumper, leaning back on the veranda steps, hot coffee in hand. He watched me approach, bemused, but left up to help me when I was about to fall out of the car. Once he had ascertained that I wasn't actually injured, he sat me down at the kitchen table, spooned instant coffee into a second mug, and reboiled the kettle without any further questions. Eventually, I spoke. Something strange happened to me last night. Yeah, I was taken back by his response. It wasn't a question. It was more of an assumption. It was just a casual acceptance. You strayed west. Maybe, I don't know, the track wasn't distinct. Nah, you did for sure. Quinkin territory. Excuse me, what territory? I had already encountered my fair share of Australian sarcasm on my trip, so I wasn't 100% sure... I wasn't being teased. My people don't go there. Haven't for thousands of years. Quinkin spirits, too much mischief, he shrugged. I saw these things like humans, but tall and thin. He nodded, unperturbed. I still felt so shaken. The echoes of metal ripping, ringing through my ears. He passed me the coffee and left the room. A little while later... When my coffee was almost gone, he came back with a photo of some cave paintings. Something like that? You're right. I told him I couldn't believe I was actually having this conversation. Speaking of caves, I found a dingo cave, too, on a hill full of dead animals. Animals? Bones, yeah. No, bits of rue and like that and and the likes. Dingoes wouldn't leave meat on a carcass. I shifted uncomfortably in my chair, unsure how to reply. Thanks for the coffee. I should go probably check out the damage of the car and get going. Damage? Yep, I reckon one of those Krakens or whatever had to go at my tent and the the rover. Something scared me half to death anyhow. Quinkin, he corrected automatically, then went silent. He watched me carefully for a minute before picking up an empty mug and putting putting them in the sink. He ran his hands through his curly, dark hair and then shook his head. Doesn't sound like them. They good spirits. I'll check out your car. 
We went outside and looked. The spare wheel, metal casing, and all had been ripped off. Window smashed. The boot door hung slightly crooked on the hinge, and half of my luggage must have fallen out as I drove. There were broad claw marks scratched through the paint on the panel on the right-hand side, and it ended in deep indentations and finally a puncture in the metal. I don't think that was Dingo's. Do you think it was one of those things? Quinkins wouldn't do this. They are cheeky buggers, but helpers. They might have been trying to warn you. Warn me about what, I asked, after hesitating to decide whether I really wanted to know. After all, Turamoli, I reckon. He, he's like him, but different. He cleared his throat. My grandfather said, when the ground shakes and the animals flee, you know the Turamoli are, is near. You're one lucky fellow that he was more interested in the tent than you. He ran his hand over the claw marks gouge in the car. It was shocking to see how small his fingers looked beneath the gash. What is? He cut me off and put his hand on my shoulder, looked me dead in the eye, expression serious at heart as a heart attack. I reckon he got your scent, though. Uh, you should get a move on, mate. I decided not to ask any more questions. I left immediately and kept driving back the original way I had come until I intersected the highway. From there, I went to the nearest city, booked a plane flight, and cut my trip short. The local indigenous people knew something about the hill. Knowledge that saw them and even their ancestors today giving that place a wide berth. Who better to learn the dangers of the land from than those who li lived from it? Next time I camp, I will be more mindful of the ancient warnings and I would recommend you do the same. That's... Just because often we used to go camping. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I looked up about the Quinkin and... Yeah. So the Terramuli is the Yowie. Is it the Yowie? Uh, and then, yeah, this tall, skinny, black-shadowed figure with bright eyes. The Quinkin. Kind of looked like the Dover, Dover Demon. Yeah, kind of did. <laughs> yeah. We need we need to uh, do an episode on these because I'm a yeah. I'm interested. A little, I'm a little creeped out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's just more proof that everything in Australia wants to kill you. Yeah. Um, you know, bring some normalcy <laughs> to it so I can be less scared. Yeah, that that, that was a really good story. Yeah, that was really good. Now, um, there's a lot of open wilderness in Australia, and if it's anything like it is in other countries where there's a lot of open wilderness, the nature spirits thrive. Oh, yeah. So while we're talking about the Quinkin and everything, so with the Quinkin, there are two types. There are the Tamara, which are the good ones, which are the tall, skinny, long-featured. Long and then there are the Imjim, which are short, fat things. Look like... Um, Pugwudgie demons. Yeah, kind of like a Pugwudgie with a long tail. Oh. A thick, thick tail, which are the bad... Spirits. Interesting. But man, it's actually cool. Like I just looked up and could see the cave paintings and stuff. They're, so, they're actually so, really cool. So yeah. kinda like in Australia you got the fairies that are like the sealies and the unsealies. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much similar entities but with different intents. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And so our next story comes from and if you remember back to just last episode with our, um, he is the linguist that gave us the details on the Janet's voice. Mm -hmm. As I'm sure many of you know, 
My father was a youth minister who had studied Christian demonology as part of his learning the trade. Uh, this is probably where my interest in the occult stems from, but I digress. We'd moved into a house that was about 120 years old at the time. There were lots of spooky things about that house that I can remember looking back. For example, at eight years old, I found a chunk of green glass slag that I kept calling my crystal. That my father was adamant I get rid of. There was also a closet that we never used and never spoke of. Anyway, the town I lived in held an annual parade and festival. Nowadays, it's just a town-wide garage sale. But when I was a kid, it was something to look forward to. There was a parade, vendors, carnival games, and so on. Well, part of the deal with my dad being the youth minister at this church was the house we lived in. It was only two doors down from the church, and the pastor was our neighbor. I was about 10 or 11 years old, and my brother was about 7 or 8. During this festival, he wanted to show me what he'd done in Sunday school this last week. So we went into the church. At this church, Sunday school was held in the basement. It was a nice finished basement and all that jazz. When we went into the church, there were people upstairs moving things for the festival. So we went downstairs and were the only people in the basement. My brother started showing me all these things that he had done and we were playing in his classroom when we heard footsteps. We figured that it was just one of the adults coming to check on us, so we ignored it until the room started getting very cold. My brother and I looked at each other and could tell that we were both filled with dread. At this point, the door to the room we were in slowly started opening. I did the first thing that came to mind and said aloud what I had memorized the Sunday before, the Lord's Prayer. Once I said amen, the door slammed closed. My brother and I both started screaming and ran out of the church as quickly as we could. My brother was smarter than me in that moment, though, and ran to our parents. I ran home to my room. As soon as I reached my destination, the room started getting cold. It was a hot summer day, but I was shivering, and this house didn't have AC or anything. When I turned and looked at the doorway to my room, I noticed that everything was darker than it should be, as though the sun was setting and it wasn't actually early afternoon. I began feeling that creeping dread again when I remembered something that my father had told me when we first moved into the house. If you ever feel scared, or like there's something there that shouldn't be there, just say out loud, with the blood of Jesus Christ, King of Nazareth, I command you to leave. So that's what I did. After I said it, the room became warm again and lightened up. Things returned to normal, and I ran the fuck out of that house. (laughs) Looking back, I know my father knew that something was there. Why the fuck else would you tell that to a nine-year-old when you first move into a house? Anyway, that was my first experience with a world unseen. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that reminded me so much of the church that I used to go to. Uh, On Main Street? Yeah. And downstairs in the basement, it was the daycare. But it was also where we did Bible study and youth group and all that stuff. And when we'd have lock-ins, we would all sleep in the basement. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a basement at night. It's dark. So we would turn off all the lights and we'd have flashlights and we'd play hide and seek in the dark. One of the most fun games ever. But there was one time I was hiding. There was like a back staircase that went back up into the the church on one end of the basement. It wasn't the stairs that we normally use to go up into the church. It was just like an extra like maintenance entrance or whatever. But I was hiding on the staircases. And I just started hearing these footsteps upstairs in the church. And they got close to the door. And then I didn't hear the door open. Then I started hearing footsteps on the stairs. And I shined my flashlight up at the stairs and there was nothing there. And I was like, okay. So then I I gave, I was like, I'm here. (laughs) Find me. (laughs) Did you start chanting the Lord's Prayer? (laughs) I, yeah, if I would have known it at the time, I was, I only went to church for the boys. That's uh, <laughs> why so I went to youth group in high school. I think it was for the chicks. <laughs> <laughs> I clarify that real quick. But yeah, and there were many times that would be down in those rooms, and yeah, you would just feel because like the rooms had windows, like you in the hallway, you could see into the rooms. There was yeah. like there were windows all the way up and down the hallway, and you'd be in those rooms, and you just feel like somebody was watching you from the hallway and there'd be nobody there that's kind of how the church i went to sophomore year it was kind of in the middle like backed in this alleyway so it was kind of hard to see but it wasn't a basement but it had a bunch of upstairs rooms but like they weren't normally arranged like they had doors that went into little rooms that i mean unless you knew they were there you wouldn't only reason we knew is because when we do lock-ins or whatever we just go snooping through but there's certain some of those rooms just felt really eerie and like no one would go in there, like because yeah, we'd do like you know hide and seek or whatever, and yeah, you'd see people run by, open the door, like they're gonna go in, and then like nope, close the door and back out and go someplace else. <laughs> well, I mean, even at that church, even the adults, nobody went down into the basement without somebody else because yeah. it just had this like creepy vibe. And oh, yeah. where the other pastors murdered and <laughs> buried all the kids. I mean, <laughs> um. that's what all those handprints were. <laughs> no, um. But yeah, oh, toys would go off in the classrooms. You know, all, I mean, yeah, I forgot yeah, all about that. That's why the wallpaper looked like skin. <laughs> I don't know if you all remember me telling about the uh, Methodist church that yeah. we painted when I was a, uh, I oh, I guess a young teenager. Yeah. And I we had that. a lot of run-ins with spirits. I can't remember what episode I talked about it on. It was, it was one, of the, uh, one of our, I think it was our personal stories episode. Yeah, maybe it was yeah, Hannah Norman so. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Or Hannah Norman, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, I'm, it's interesting that churches are so haunted. Not I, for me, all it's that not. energy. All that energy. Oh, yeah. yeah. I guess you are feeling it with energy every Wednesday and Sunday. A lot of spiritual energy there, a lot of psychological energy there. It's That's like any other holy site. Yeah. But yeah. That was a. One of the things I feel like it, I mean, you know, all these people are coming with good energy and everything, but I feel like it's the astral hobos and the. Well, things feeding off of the oh, energy that totally. they're not good entities. Yeah. But yeah. they're just using the energy to manifest. Mm-hmm. They're just sucking up that energy. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even when you invoke like angels and stuff, angels are, they're very militant, you know. I believe, believe we even asked our uh, youth leader if we could bring a Ouija board into the basement. <laughs> that got us some 
weird looks. I'm like, no, we don't bring Ouija boards into the church. <sighs> but it's the <laughs> church. Like... <laughs> But you can uh, check out Frater Yara's podcast, Faith Blind Council. Thank you for the story. Yes, Thank this you. was a very good story, and it brought up memories, flashbacks, <laughs> we might say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have one more from our favorite Australian, and this is actually a personal story of hers. My husband and our two kids, five and three at the time, were camping at Yungala Dam, Queensland. And thank you, Amy, for putting that out phonetically because I never would have gotten that name from the spelling. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really popular camping spot and can be really packed full of campers. So we picked a random weekend when we knew it wouldn't be full of other campers. We get to the dam, pick a spot away from the, a few other campers that were all spaced well away from each other. We were the only campers with kids. The other campers were either young couples or a few groups of couples camped together. So we made sure we didn't camp too close to the others as our kids most likely woke early. It was beautiful weather. The kids were having a ball running around and playing me following behind to keep my Mr. Three who always runs off out of trouble. The day goes by night approaches. We have dinner toast marshmallows. Soon the kids are in bed and the hubby and I clean up and have a few quiet drinks then go into the tent with our kids and soon fall asleep. What happens next happens very quickly. It was late when I get woken up suddenly because I can hear my son screaming for me. I swear, my blood ran cold and I instantly hit panic mode. Husband, of course, sound asleep beside me. It was very dark. I can't see a thing. I'm scrambling to get up and out of bed so I can, I can still hear him out there and getting more distant. In our tent, I had the kids' air beds on the foot of our, at the foot of our bed. And I was feeling around to find my way out and checking the kids' beds. I felt my daughter in her bed. My son's bed was empty. You can't imagine the panic I was feeling. As, just as I'm about to run out into the dark, I calm myself. I feel more carefully around my son's bed. Then I feel his little foot. He wasn't outside. He had rolled off the bed. The screams that I could hear were even more distant now. Then I stopped. I put my son back in bed. Checked my daughter. Hubby's still sound asleep. I stuck my head out of the tent door and listened, looked. Everything is still calm. Normal nighttime sounds. The campsites were dark. They were all in bed. Was it a bird or was it something I had heard? Thought it was my son? I was in such a deep sleep that when he rolled off his bed, did he yell out for me and my brain just played tricks on me? Thinking it was coming from outside? Honestly, this whole thing could have been so very easily explained away. I really don't know, but I know I snapped wide awake when I heard his scream in a frantic second that I checked his bed and I could hear him outside. All I know is I'm glad I calmed myself down before running outside into the dark. I always feel silly retelling this story, but it happened and it seriously gave me the biggest fright. I don't think I'd ever get the ice cold sinking feeling of panic and fear. That would freak me out. Yeah. Oh, me too. It sounds like a spirit trying to... Lure, L- lure her yeah. out, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of what I was thinking. And I mean, yeah, because it could have been other campers or something like that. But yeah, I don't know. Just to me, it sounds like yeah, something was trying to lure her out of her tent. To, like, yeah, I think it was some of those nature spirits, those uh, Quinkin, Quinkin, or the uh, Imjin. Yeah, 
Which I'm thinking maybe Quinkin is maybe like a local dialect for something. Yeah, yeah. probably a, the native. Because he, he also called the what we c- is collectively known as the, the Yowie as the Terramoli. Yeah, Terramoli. Who knows? But yeah. Which was weird because I'd been looking at Quinkin and he said Terramoli. I had no idea how to spell it, so I put T U and instantly it came up Terramoli, uh, <laughs> the Yowie. And I was like, how the fuck did my phone know? <laughs> It was listening to me talk. Yeah. Um, me and you and your phone all share a brain. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that story, oh, it gave me the, the chills. FBI listening on us. <laughs> Listen, uh, reading it. But it reminded me of a camping trip that we took. And remember, it started storming. And oh, yeah. the tent started leaking. And our dad gets us up to go and climb into the truck. But we can't find our stepbrother, who okay, you were probably, what, eight? I was eight, so he would have been like 10. Yeah. And so we're hunting like the campground. We're go- looking everywhere, and trying pouring, to find them. a downpour. Downpour, yeah. The t- the tent there's there's a good four or five inches of water in the tent. The oh, air mattresses no. are floating. We're all drenched trying to find Matt. And then we're out like trying to get into the truck, and we hear Dad start laughing, and, and he yells, "Found him!" He had crawled himself into one of those Rubbermaid tubs. And then pulled the lid and over on top. And pulled the lid down on top of him. Because <laughs> it was raining and he didn't want to get wet. That's actually pretty genius because yeah. it was flooding. It, yeah. it floats. Yeah. <laughs> but we were all panicked trying to find him. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that night there was also a tornado that had hit up oh, at Frontier sure. City. Yeah. And so when we woke up to the storming and the wind and the rain, that was kind of our panic. Like, did it move? That's because we were down in Sulphur. I was like, did it move that far south? Because usually storms break up before they move that yeah. far. But uh, yeah, that was a that was a scary night. And then yeah. we ended up what five of us sleeping in the, in the pickup pickup in a extended cab, not even a full like four door pickup, Just, an extended cab like bench seat <laughs> in the back. And yeah, Matt slept on the seat. I slept on the floor between the back seat and the front seat. You slept slept in the middle between Dad yeah, and our stepmom. Yeah. And like oh i hurt so bad the next morning (laughs) and yeah we got up we tore down our tent air dried it a little bit packed up and we went back we weren't going to stay another night like that because the tent was pretty much shredded after the storm but that story definitely reminded me of that we're just bringing up all kinds of memories tonight with these (laughs) tales oh and i and i did remember it was in the last listener ones we did that I mentioned that because yeah. it really wasn't my paranormal story. It was Somebody surrounding with my family. Yeah. All right. Time for our nest, our nest, our time for our next listener story. This comes from the fellas over at Grognostics. Hi, guys. I miss you so much. Steve uh, I hope you remember whenever Santa Claus was doing his <laughs> I hope you guys are doing great with everything going on. Yeah. So here is their story. The car shuddered to a stop just in time to let a pickup truck that ran the stop sign hurtle by without even a glance in their direction. There it is. Mile marker two. Turn there, Penelope instructed. Robert turned the car onto the gravel road and eager to get to their destination after a long drive. His abrupt acceleration on the gas pedal sent Penelope's chai latte splashing out of the middle console and onto her pale, milky legs, causing her to let out an angered yelp. The town of Millhaven on the eastern seaboard of Maine didn't start haunted. Some say it became haunted. Not once, 
but twice in the town's 200-year history. The first was in 1840, after British investor Thomas Millhaven failed at turning the sparsely populated fishing village into a popular vacation destination for New England elite, trying their luck at catching sturgeon and yellowfin. Devastated and not eager to answer to the board of his family's trust upon the telegram informing them their wealth had been depleted to close to nothing, Thomas had to think of a plan, and in quite steadfast fashion. It was around that time that the stories of ghosts and spirits began sprouting around the town, quite serendipitously. One entity, for example, just happened to grace the presence of Henry Shant, renowned Baltimore journalist who came to the town after an invite from a quote-unquote anonymous tip that the town was haunted, and he came to write a story for the Gazette. While asleep his first night there, he was apparently visited by an entity and inexplicable claw marks were discovered on his back the next morning. Convinced that he was attacked by a violent demon in his sleep, Shant wrote a story about it, and Millhaven was on the map. From there, one ghost story after another propagated, many by Millhaven himself. Most, though, especially those who knew Millhaven, were quite doubtful the stories were true. And when we say quite doubtful, we mean they knew they were absolutely not true. But despite all the circumstantial evidence, there was one event that happened several years later that seemed to hold more validity. After Thomas recouped his losses and satisfied the board back home, he began pocketing most of the town's profits and individual taxes, which mostly went to fuel his drinking and gambling habits. These, as one might expect, paled in comparison to his favorite pastime, loose women. And that pastime came to a head on a Sunday morning in autumn of 1846, when his pregnant girlfriend, Miss Abigail Wilson, after denouncing him as a womanizer, drunk, and a cheater, flung herself off the church belfry in front of the entire town square filled with people. Before her tragic jump, she vowed to haunt every individual who remained in the town after her death, which, among many unsettling things in this world, is quite near the top of unsettling. However, this was clearly a plight to get to what mattered to Thomas the most, his bank account. Three days later, when objects began moving and doors began shutting with no evidence of natural reasons throughout the town, residents began talking about leaving. Sure, of course those random acts couldn't within 100% certainty be tied to the plight of one Miss Wilson, right before she flung herself to her demise, that is. But there was one piece of promise before she met her bloody violent end. Something about a certain lying, cheating, good-for-nothing boyfriend meeting his own departure via a certain very specific body of water was the last bellowing cry before stepping off the ledge. And when you know it, a fortnight later, just as predicted, Thomas's bloated, lifeless corpse was dragged from the lake on his own property. And from that day forward, maybe, just maybe it was corroborated by many that the town of Millhaven was 100% without a doubt haunted. Pen, are we close? Robert quizzed, slowing the car down. Uh, I think this is the place, Penelope responded. That, there, there, that one there. The weathered but charming cottage rests just yards away from a breathtaking bluff with a view of an ominous bank of storm clouds lingering just off the coast. 
As they crossed the threshold into the rustic cabin home, at first glance they were both thrilled with the cozy appeal. However, noted the chill in the air and found it to be a perfect excuse to rustle up a romantic fire in the stone-laden hearth. They quickly settled in and opened a bottle of Cabernet. Penn noticed some board games in the corner of the room and pulled the dusty, faded red box from the stack. The familiar Scrabble logo became visible. As they set up the game, an abrupt buzzing from Robert's phone began to vibrate across the ornate coffee table. Eager to evade the toil of the city, he opts to swipe right and deny the call. Instantly upon doing so, the fire was inexplicably snuffed out. Penn shot Robert a puzzled look and reached for the gas starter to reignite the ambiance. Though a frightened look embarked upon Penn's face, garnishing an obligatory reaction from her man. These old cabins, you know, that sometimes they're affected by technology, I guess? Something to do with wavelengths or, you know, 5G or whatever. Here, let me, uh... No! Don't! Penn angrily shouted. That was strange, Robert thought. I want it dark. She followed up with a less scornful, irregular tone. So who was that on the phone? Uh, it's just a telemarketer. I mean, I, I promise, no more phone calls. Oh. Hmm. Penn didn't seem to be so sure. Here, I've set it to airplane mode, Robert added. Just me and you. You want to go into town or something and try some of those oysters that we saw? Or perhaps we could just stay in and finish the bottle? Three hours and two bottles of cab later, the couple lay passed out on the old antique couch in the front living room before being jolted awake. At the same time, the fireplace mysteriously roared back to life. I thought you said it was on airplane... Penn interrogated in a groggy haze of angry confusion. It was. I swear, it's, it still is. How is this ringing? What was that? Is that the door? Penn raced to greet the suspicious front door guest. Penn, no, let me get it. Robert couldn't get there fast enough. Oh, hello there. The name is Philip. Philip, what time is it? And What the hell are you doing here? Oh, sorry to both you folks. I'm the... I'm with the tourist board here in Millhaven. Apologies. It's just that I've tried to call a few times and I kept getting a busy signal on that old phone in the B&B. And then, you know, Aunt Celeste accidentally flushed her meds again and I had to go down to the pharmacy and then, well, uh, never mind. You folks have an evening to get to, so I'll let you... Oh, oh, I almost forgot. Here is your welcome basket. Oh, and here, here are some tickets for two free entrees at Vic's Seafood Chalet. And for the lady... Half a massage and facial thingies at Maggie Mills Spa. And then haven't forgot about you there, sport. Half our fishing trip leaves right here off the dock behind Sparky's Tavern. Anything else you need, here's my card. Here, let me just give it to you. Here, let me... Robert went to maneuver the basket in order to grab the card and almost spilled the contents onto the porch. Here you go. Philip dropped the card into Robert's shirt pocket. And with that, I'll be on my way, sir, ma'am. Good night now. And with the tip of the hat, Philip absconded down the cobblestone pathway into the darkness. Well, that was interesting, Robert suggested, poking his head outside. What, did he did he walk here? I don't recall us being anywhere close to a main road. What was... Robert was perplexed. Well, that man, sort of a strange fellow, right? What did he say his name was? He fished around in his pants pocket for the card. Not really. I, I mean, I do find it strange that you received two phone calls since we've been here, and both you won't even tell me who from. Ah, here it is. Robert pulled his glasses out from the pocket of his jacket, which was draped over the kitchen chair. 
He put them over his long Italian nose and brushed his bangs from his eyes while holding up the card to eye level. Well, that's weird. The card, it's... Robert turned the card over. What? Hmm. You were saying, Pen prodded? Oh, right. Uh, blank. The card is blank, Robert responded, jamming it back into his pocket, crumbling it in his haste. Penelope seemed disinterested, mostly disgusted without the answers to her phone questions, and made her way down the hall into the washroom. Once out of sight, Robert once again retrieved the card from his pocket. It was now crumpled, so he carefully unwrapped the edges and placed it on the kitchen table to smooth it out. In the faint light of the moon, the three words on the paper shone like a beacon of light in a sea of darkness. Go. Now. Alone. Frozen in fear and confusion, Robert didn't notice the sound behind him until it was too late. Oh, Pen, uh, I didn't hear you come... And then... Darkness. Robert, in a frantic effort, he feels around for his phone. Pen, what the... What the hell happened? His hand finally discovers his lifeline, and he quickly brings the screen to life and scans around the room. The screen light, though low, reveals he is still standing by himself without Pen in sight. Pen! Where'd you go? Penelope! He angrily shouts into the darkness. This isn't funny, he grumbles. The lights suddenly flicker back to life and just in time for Penn to reply from the bathroom down the hall. What are you going on about, Robert? Robert, still half drunk from the wine buzz, scans the room in confusion and notices the wrinkled card from the unexpected visitor has gone missing. Are you screwing with me now, Penn? In a snarky tone. Screwing with you? How? Penn asks, sounding exhausted. Well, you end up missing. Now the business card is gone. I feel like I'm being punked. Are you trying to prank me? Having a bit of fun, are you? Robert, you're drunk. Let's just go to bed. Penn rolled her eyes as she exited the laboratory, wiping her hands across her jeans. Robert shook off the incident as perhaps just old wiring and assumes Penn is right about his drunken state. I'm beat, he thought. My mind's just playing tricks on me and he gets up to trail Penn into the bedroom. As he staggers down the hallway, he starts to feel dizzy. Around the same time, he feels a wet, gooey substance on the back of his head. He reaches back, and he feels a clump of damp hair. Bringing his hand into the light, he can see that his hand is covered in blood. And that's when the pain kicks in. He lets out a groan. Honey, is it bleeding? Penn chirps chillingly, nonchalantly from the bedroom. What the hell happened? Here, take this. Penn stuffs some pills into his mouth and shoves a glass of water up to his face. You took uh, quite a spill. Come over here, baby. Let's get you cleaned up and into bed. I did, Robert exclaimed. I don't I remember looking at the card and then... Robert stopped. He remembered. She was coming towards him and then... They say the breaking point for the human body to go ahead and voluntarily take a breath when drowning is about 87 seconds. 87 seconds to contemplate escape from the liquid prison standing in your way between life and death. The natural tendency in all of us not to breathe underwater is so innate that it actually masks the tragic natural progression of that, running out of air. But 87 seconds, call it unwarranted hopefulness the body will take a breath. And it is then that the process of drowning officially begins as water rushes into your lungs, bringing in with it the grim reaper of aquatic demise. 
This all, of course, happens while we're still conscious. In Robert's case, it took far less time. Looking, he could see the surface of the water and the moon shining through. He was not more than a foot away from reaching his hand up through the water. He tried to swim, but his body wouldn't move. He pushed harder and would move just slightly. Harder still, slightly more, but not enough, and he was running out of time. For on any normal day, 87 seconds. 87 seconds to try and hold your breath in hopes of a rescue or to swim to safety. But on this night, it was just 14. 14 seconds before realizing something or someone was preventing him from breaching the surface of the water to take that breath. He looked down and came to the frightful realization that something was holding him down, holding him by his leg with a grip stronger than a thousand men. Robert! Robert! Oh my God! Someone was calling his name from the shore. Help! He wanted to scream out. He began to thrash about. He couldn't hold it any longer. He had to take a breath. Robert! It was no hope. He went to breathe. Light flooded his confusion as he gasped for air. Instead of water, he met the oxygen he longed for as he was pulled from the water. There, in the clawfoot tub, originally handcrafted and placed in that very spot in 1846, Robert took a long, frantic inhale. Robert, what happened? I left for ten seconds to find you in a towel, and you you must have passed out. Jesus, you almost drowned, Penelope exclaimed. I was, uh, uh, I was outside. I was here, but not. I... I need to sit down. Here. You were here, Robert. With me. Here, dry off and come to bed and stop scaring me tonight. Robert gathered himself and he walked into the bedroom. His cell phone began ringing. Let me guess. It's one of them, isn't it? One of who? Robert quizzed. You know who I'm talking about, Penelope began. And when I find them, they're going to meet their violent end at the bottom of the lake. She finished with a demonic snarl her face almost changing shape into another being. How do you know there is a lake? Just then, the phone answered itself. Hello, hello. Who is this? Penelope scowled. Um, this is Jake from State Farm. The voice on the other end retorted. Of course, this wouldn't be a proper grognostic story without some horribly timed lame attempt at comedy thrown in at the most misopportune time. Penelope broke out of character to interject. What are you wearing, Jake from State Farm? (laughs) Look, I don't know what's gotten into you, but ever since we've been here, you've been acting strange, Penn, Robert started. Acting how? How exactly? Robert, look, uh, I love you, but I just want us to have a good time, and you're really scaring me with all of these falls and the bathtub and the weird business cards telling you to leave. Oh, shit. Now he remembered. The card. It was giving him a warning. Who was giving him a warning? He couldn't remember what it said. His head. His head still hurt. And now she'd seen the card? He was so confused. Just then the phone rang again. Hello? Robert, now getting angry at the interruptions, answered. Robert, don't speak. Act dumb. Just listen to what I'm saying. The voice on the other end. It was so familiar. Who is it, Robert? Penelope lovingly asked. She. It. I don't know, but she did something to your phone with the frequency of it or something. Uh, It must have been when she got in the car. I don't know. Robert? Honey? Got in my car? He tried to focus. He was having a hard time figuring out where he was. He thought about his day. 
Oh, okay. Yo, oh, yo, okay. Yeah, I think I have that policy already, but go on. Robert attempted to distract Penelope for a moment until he could get his bearings. I waited and waited for you, but you never came. I tried calling your phone, but it's disconnected. I waited, Robert. You didn't get me. Are you hearing me? Robert, I know this is going to be hard to comprehend, but listen to me carefully. I never got in that car with you today. He thought back to his morning, leaving work early, picking up the voice on the phone. He had known the whole time who it was, but couldn't navigate through the wine and the lack of oxygen from drowning in the fall. His head, his head hurt more now than ever. Robert, I love you. I love you, Robert. It hit him. The voice on the other end of the phone, it was her. It was Penelope. I don't... He started to speak, looking up at Penelope. Well, the Penelope that was right in front of him, smiling wistfully. Honey, just hang up and come to bed, she begged. Just listen, Robert. When you didn't get me, I called and called, and then ultimately I drove. I drove to Millhaven. When I got there, I stopped by the property office, and they told me that you and I had already come by and got the keys. I went to the house, Robert, the one that we rented. You're not there. I did some research. This town, the history, the hauntings, they're real, Robert. Five men have disappeared mysteriously. Where are you? Where are you? Robert barely heard any of it. However, as what seemed like a joint motion, swiping the phone from his hand and grabbing his hair simultaneously happened in an instant. The next thing he knew, his body was being dragged head first across the floor like he was made of stuffing. Once out the door and into the Arctic autumn air, Robert looked back at the house. Its decrepit shingles lay cracked on what was left of the roof. The siding of the house had countless gaps and holes where birds that had long come and gone called it home for a period of time. The chimney, which appeared when inside to be the catalyst of the warm hearth, lay in ruins. Several pieces lay all over the yard. <laughs> You're at Millhaven Manor, Robert. Isn't that what she wanted to know? They always figure it out when it's too late. Too late, Robert. Let me go. I don't know who or, or what you are, but you don't have to do this. Oh, but I do. Because if not, you won't stop. None of you will stop. The loving, beautiful Penelope, who he'd spent the last two years of his life with, was as his actual Penelope had informed him on the phone, not his loving, beautiful Penelope at all. In fact, she was nothing short of a monster. She was Abigail Wilson. And she was headed, dragging Robert behind her, to Thomas Milhaven's Lake. say i have chills man dude bros from another hose you guys are fucking that awesome. was kind of rude well bros from another witch bros from another bitch. why would you you just bros. called their parents hoes their mother's hoes shit you're right <laughs> the thing is is they asked me to make sure that i preempted that they weren't horror writers <laughs> sure sounded like that was really freaking good you guys yeah. are amazing I thought they were just I like thought. another story or something. I didn't realize they, they wrote, wrote that. Yeah, 
I've been a long time fan of Grognostics. You should definitely go check out their podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. They've they got are some amazing. amazing skits that they write. They have little stories like this that they tell. They tell. Um, I'm still like shivering from that. Oh, man. That yeah. was really good. Really, really good. Where's our Netflix series? Yeah. Written by Grognostics. Yeah, you guys, you're out there in California. <laughs> y'all, y'all get down there in Hollywood and you get this story going and you sell it to Netflix and give us credit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was oh, good. That was awesome. Yeah. We love you guys. Yep. About due for another uh, joint episode. The yeah. pandemic was the last one. I still listen to our Christmas episode. <laughs> yeah, of course you would. And we will finish out this Listener Boo Y'all with a story written by Jack Campbell Jr. and delivered and performed by Unearthing Paranormal Scene. Lights, camera, action. This is Cow of Cthulhu. On the morning of the unfathomable event, I, Robert Joseph Egerton III, was awakened from a fitful slumber by a heavy knock upon my bedchamber door. Baba Joe, my mother said, you best get out of bed and get breakfast. Those chores ain't gonna do themselves. I wiped a crust of sleep from the corner of my eye. My faithful feline companion Applejack stretched and then leapt from my feather-stuffed mattress. Applejack and I had spent my sleeping hours exploring the dreamland city of Ultar, using sleep techniques promoted by my renowned professors. My feline guide had escorted me on a tour of the legendary village where no man may kill a cat. T'was but the first day of the annual spring equinautical sabbatical enjoyed by the students of Miskatonic University. That prestigious, if unorthodox, institution where I had pursued my studies of forbidden knowledge for the last four years. A thunderous knock reverberated through the walls of my bedchamber, followed by a voice that matched its vulgar intensity. My father ordered me to remove my posterior from my down mattress or face the insertion of his boot into said posterior. (laughs) Newly energized... I rose from my bed and retrieved my student copy of the dread Necronomicon from my nightstand. I had hoped that the mysterious book would provide the basis for my graduate research. Applejack waited at the door, slinking through as I opened it. She beat me to the kitchen, where she broke her fast on a saucer of milk. I sat at the kitchen table, groggy from my lack of sleep. I opened the writings of Abdul Alhazred to the place where my exhaustion had suspended the previous night's study. My grandfather, who lived with my parents on their Flint's Hills ranch, read the morning newspaper. I examined the front page from across the table, but seeing no mention of Cthulhu's rise, I quickly lost interest. My classmates spent their spring holiday searching the Gulf of Mexico for Relia, where it was said the elder god Cthulhu waited in slumber for his release. Recent research had uncovered a strange cult, rumored to be composed of Mayan ancestors, who knew the ceremonial acts that could awaken and release Cthulhu's insanity upon this wretched realm.
I had been unable to procure the necessary funds for a trip to the strange place known as Cancun, but I hoped to join my esteemed mentor, Dr. William Dyer, on his summer archaeological dig in the mountains of Antarctica. The study of such a place could only be a success. My grandfather watched through a raised eyebrow as I removed the top from the salt shaker and poured its contents on the table's dark, mahogany surface. He shook his head as I reproduced signs and sigils from the Necronomicon by tracing my fingers through the white pile. I practiced my chants as I drew. My mother, who had been occupied by her duties at the stovetop, scolded me. Bobby Joe, I'm not going to be one cleaning up that mess. You best get that salt off the table before your daddy sees it. Poppy, are you just going to let him sit there and do that nonsense? Hey, my kid. My grandfather said, burying his face behind the paper. Love him to death, but he ain't my problem. I swept the offending granules into my palm and then discarded them into the trash receptacle. As I did, my father entered the room, tugging his John Deere trucker cap over his brown forehead. In my entire life, I had only seen him without that particular piece of headwear, on Sundays and Christian holidays. In a feat of domestic timing that I could never fully comprehend, my father always sat down just as my mother finished cooking his bacon and eggs. Their marital routine was as dependable as the movement of the constellations. My father picked up the empty salt shaker. We had a salt. My grandfather looked at me over his paper, but said nothing. Must have used it up. My mother said, wiping her greasy hands upon her white apron. I'll get some from the pantry. My father selected a dark, crispy strip of bacon and took a large bite. As he chewed, he buttered his toast. Bobby Joe, I'm going to need you out in the pen today. Buttercup's about to pop with that calf. I sighed. Father, I have a lot of research to do. Me too. His look froze me. I got a man in Salina that's going to take the mean-ass bull off my hands. That leaves you with Buttercup. You going to make Poppy do it with his arthritis? Her name is Yogg-Sototh, I said, sounding a bit more put out than I had planned. My father chuckled and my father stopped chewing. I poked at the bulbous yolk of my fried egg with a fork. You told me I could name her. I didn't think you'd come up with such a full name. My father took a bite of his toast. Hell, I thought you might show some interest in the ranch. Some responsibility would be good for you. Get you out of those books and put you in the pasture. I set down my fork. I'll have you know that Yalxatoth is the gate. My grandfather cackled madly and then stood, folding his newspaper. <laughs> oh, shit. He muttered, wiping tears from his eyes. He continued laughing as he left the room. My father's face bloomed red. He pointed at me with his fork. I'm glad you know about Gates. There's one on Buttercup's pen. Finish up and get out there. You could use the sun. You're pale as death. After consuming my breakfast, I retreated to my room. My spirits were dark, and as I thought of my classmates sailing upon the Mexican coastal waters, I whispered the chant that would be the cornerstone of their ceremonies. Finglui, Migalanov, Cthulhu, Relia, Waganov, Slinchkanen. 
I dressed in the clothing of a native rancher. Blue jeans, t-shirt, boots, and a wide-brimmed cowboy hat. I'd never felt comfortable in such garb, even as a child raised upon the vast rocky prairies of the front hills. I wore a case I ate shirt, a jab at my father. He was as much a John Deere man as he was a Methodist. Wearing anything with case on it was roughly the equivalent of converting to Catholicism. My grandfather bought the shirt for me in high school, just to needle him. I stepped outside to find the dark sky and pregnant with the promise of rain. Yog Sotov was confined inside the barn. I found her laying on her side in the pen. The birthing process had begun prior to my arrival, and a slimy appendage had already appeared. The cow pulsated and squirmed, looking over her shoulder at me, as if I could share any wisdom on the subject on how to give birth to a calf. Easy, y'all, buttercup. You can do it, girl. I struggled to keep my voice even, but it shook with trepidation. I had not witnessed such an event since I entered the hollowed halls of Miskatonic University. I was disgusted, yet the scene was as warmly familiar as a well-tended hearth. The cow mooed in apparent acceptance of my presence and continued to breathe deeply. A flash of lightning illuminated the appearance of a second appendage covered in slimy, white discharge. Thunder rumbled above the barn, and the rest of the livestock grew nervous. Yogsatoth continued on with her duty, pushing the strange slime-covered parasite out of her body. She called out in pain as the bottom half of her offspring squirmed on the pen floor. Rain pattered upon the barn roof, slowly developing into a steady downpour. The lightning and thunder reached a crescendo, Adrenaline coursed through my veins, sending my heart into a flutter. The temperature dropped and I shivered. I watched Yogg-Satoth's progress. With a final call, accented by a nearby strike of lightning, her progeny dropped free. A steaming pile of placenta followed. Good girl, I said, slipping forward to check on the status of the calf. Another flash of lightning illuminated, not a hoof, but a scaly, green claw. The tentacle-like appendage that had made the first appearance, in fact, was a tentacle. One of many that decorated the elongated face of the newborn creature. The slimy beast was about half the size of a human toddler. I lifted it from the ground. Yogg-Satoth didn't seem to mind, having accomplished her task of bringing the thing into the world. She was preoccupied with devouring the placenta. The creature seemed to be wrapped in some sort of dark leather cocoon. As I peeled it open, I found that they were actual wings, like a bat's, floated over a slimy green body. I gazed upon its eyes. Something in my mind snapped, and I knew the horrible truth. Chuckling like my grandfather, I carried the infant god Cthulhu 
out into the open air. Lightning and thunder fought battles around us. The rain soaked my clothing, wilting the cowboy hat on top of my head. I held Cthulhu beneath his arms and raised him to the war-torn sky. A tiny, high-pitched roar found its way through the massive tentacles. As the tiny god stretched his black wings, I could not stop laughing. Thousands of miles away, my classmates searched the Gulf of Mexico for evidence of the elder gods. Yet, I found one in a Flint's Hills cow. Cthulhu was glorious in his awfulness. I began to recite his chant, but quickly realized that it no longer made sense. Cthulhu no longer slept in Relia. He had awoken in Kansas. I couldn't wait until my father got home. It would drive him mad. (laughs) (laughs) I love that story. Uh, Where cows are real. Jack Campbell Jr. is a dark fiction writer in Lawrence, Kansas. His writing has appeared in various venues, including 23 Magazine, Dance Macabre, and Insomnia Press. He writes about reading, writing, and life on his blog at www.jackcampbelljr.com. <laughs> I'm just kidding. JackCampbellJr.com. That was a good story. That, that was a good yeah. story. Uh, yeah. I also had never noticed the connection between Cthulhu and Catholicism. Anybody <laughs> else notice that? Because I totally did. The synchronicities with this story were pretty awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, we got the whole cow thing. But then Applejack. Yeah. I, Applejack well, is my imaginary reading, friend. I didn't realize. I was like, is Jack Campbell like Amy or Dave's like pen name? <laughs> no. <laughs> no <laughs> totally like Apple, not. Applejack. And then like, like I don't know. It sounded like something like that you two would write together. <laughs> um, I'll be sharing more of his stories later. Uh, we're probably for Christmas. We're going to continue the tradition of telling uh, spooky stories. In the fashion of Graveyard Tales. Yes, and he's got a good one. Nice. That one. Mm-hmm. But that is our first ever listener, listener booyah. booyah. And our listeners did not disappoint. Oh, no. Uh, I think some of them were better than when we do our own booyah. Oh, yeah. I, those were some really good stories. And thank everybody for submitting their stories. Um, I was kind of getting worried about two weeks ago that we only had like four stories. And then all of a sudden here at the end, everybody's pushed to get them to us and we appreciate it so much. Yeah. Thank you all. Um, yeah, definitely. Awesome. Now make sure the next Saturday, um, Halloween night at nine o'clock central standard time, we're going to go live and do a live Halloween episode. Um, we're getting everything together. Getting it all set up. This will be a first attempt. Can't guarantee how great it's going to be, but we're going to do our best. And we hope to have you guys get on our Facebook group and join our group so that you can watch us live and participate. We're going to be doing some divination, so start thinking about some questions that you have for the future. Um, uh, I was also going to say uh, we're going to. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try and get um, everything working well. 
Uh, it might be a situation where we have to. Uh, it, it'll it'll be streamed to our Facebook page, regardless of the manner of which it is. Um, but uh, yeah, so just just hold out and enjoy the viewing. And in addition to any questions you have about the future, also bring questions you have of the present. Yeah. Well, the present is only for a second. You just missed it. Yep. And again. (laughs) And again. (laughs) Just missed it. When? Right now. (laughs) And again. Sorry, I was quoting Spaceballs and no (laughs) one seemed to go with it. (laughs) So anyway, that's going to be our listener boo. Y'all, so get on our Facebook group. UMP Normalcy. Um, follow us, like us, and t- follow us, like us, and tweet us, message us, whatever it is you do on all those things at UMP Normalcy. And we've got our website, umpnormalcy.com. And we've got the new, new merch. merch. We've got Thunderpuss. Thunderpuss t shirt is out. It's t shirt. I think I've got it on there for t shirts, bags, a lot of stuff. I was stickers, all kinds of stuff. Masks. There's like three different types of masks yeah. on there. Um, but don't worry, it doesn't say Thunderpuss, so you can, you know, if you want to wear it to work, it just says Unearthing Paranormalcy, and it has a Thunderpuss, it has an octopus wrapped around Lake Thunderbird. Um, I spent a long time on that. I'm very proud of that It looks really good. (laughs) Um, still working on the wear cow picture. We'll get a wear t-shirt. We'll get a wear cow t-shirt going. Yeah. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening. We love our listeners. We hope to do more of these listener stories. So, don't wait for the call out. If you've got one, send one out. If we start getting enough of them, we'll go ahead and get an episode going. Oh, absolutely. Um, And they can be stories that you found, like Amy's, or they can be ones you write, like grognostics or personal stories, like the other ones. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. We love our listeners. Be sure, Halloween night, get on Facebook Live, join our Facebook group. We'll get it to you. If there's a delay in time, just make sure you're in the group because we'll let you know. We'll keep you updated because we are going to take our kids on a little trick-or-treat. Yeah. Uh, Trick-or-treating is kind of somewhat canceled in our town. They're telling people not to, but I know there's a lot of people who are still going to do it. Um, We only plan on going to two different places. But, um, yeah, so... We'll and keep you up posted on Also, time. if you miss it, um, it'll be on our Facebook page. Yeah, and then the episode, so you can go back and listen the audio from it will be released the following episode, Thursday. Yeah. So, edited, of course. Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we'll edit that one. And you can, if you want to watch the unedited, you have to go into our Facebook group. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that will do it. And everyone until, have a safe oh, yes. and happy Halloween. Yes. And if you're doing, I know some places are doing trick or treating before. Saturday, so you know everybody sure complains that Halloween is always on a weekday, and here it is on, on a, a Saturday, and they're having it a different day. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so just make sure you stay safe. You know, make sure you eat all your child's candy so they don't get poisoned or yeah. razor bladed. You know, you gotta make it all. People, we're all sick and tired of COVID. If you're gonna go out, please wear a mask. Yeah, it's Halloween. You're supposed to wear a mask. Not not even <laughs> not even a Halloween mask. Put your surgical mask or your reusable mask on under your mask. Let's stop this crap. I'm so sick and tired of not being able to go places. <laughs> so, until next time. Keep digging. Booyah!